0: And most people have a possibly vague notion of a meal shared by newly arrived pilgrims and Native Americans in which all who gathered were presumably thankful. And many of us also carry a vague notion that this is a story that sits awkwardly on top of a less than heartwarming history of the meeting of European immigrants and the indigenous people of what is now known as the Americas. A history replete with disease and deception and violence and victimization and religion and racism and greed and attempted genocide. Holding this Thanksgiving story with all of those other stories may, at first glance, lead us to ask, what went wrong? This was such a hopeful beginning. Well, first, this story many of us know about the arrival of the pilgrims and the eventual meal shared by these undocumented European immigrants and the Wapanogs is at the very least inaccurate in its particulars. Bill Bryson points out, um, looking at the poem that we heard earlier, that the Mayflower was not a bark, it was not night when they moored, Plymouth was not where first they trod but marked their fourth visit ashore, and they most decidedly did not step ashore on Plymouth Rock as, in his words, no prudent mariner would try to bring a ship alongside a boulder in a heaving December sea when a sheltered inlet beckoned nearby. There is no documented indication that these pilgrims, who called themselves saints, not pilgrims, even noticed Plymouth Rock, and there is also no indication that they held any sentimental attachment to the Mayflower which is also never mentioned. In addition, hopeful or not, it was not the beginning of the cross-cultural encounters. You may wonder, for example, how these early Mayflower settlers were able to communicate with the Indians they encountered. Bryson points out that Algonquin, the language of the Eastern tribes, is an extraordinarily complex tongue or more accurately, family of tongues. And the pilgrims were hardly gifted linguists. But the individual who spoke to the pilgrims, Squanto, actually Tisquantum, but the pilgrims couldn't quite pronounce his name correctly, Squanto spoke English with total assurance, and even a bit of Spanish, as his life up to that point was marked by European intervention. He had been twice carried off, once to England, voluntarily or not as unknown, once to Spain, sold as a slave by the Englishmen who abducted him. And returning to his land, found most of his people had died from smallpox carried by sailors. This is the man who did serve as teacher, interpreter, ambassador, and friend to these self-proclaimed saints. So no, Thanksgiving was not the beginning, and if it was hopeful, it was so because of a generosity that transcended the painful realities of what had occurred thus far. And even before that, well before that, we have other explorers. We have the Vikings arriving on the shores of the Americas, But think of this. Why do we, generally, as a culture, as a society, as a nation, begin the history of this land with Europeans? Where are the stories of the many indigenous cultures? Where is the recognition of what was here when Europeans arrived? Charles Mann describes in 1491 that rather than the thick, unbroken, monumental snarl of trees that folks like Henry David Thoreau imagined awaited the early European settlers, actually the great eastern forest was an ecological kaleidoscope of garden plots, blackberry rambles, pine barrens, and spacious groves of chestnut, hickory, and oak. Scholar David Wade Chambers, in an article entitled Native American Road Systems and Trails, points out that these were not just paths in the woods, as some might imagine, but an extensive system of roadways that spanned the Americas, making possible short, medium, and long-distance travel. And these became the roadways adopted by the early settlers, and indeed were ultimately transformed into major Highways. Historian Francis Jennings, clearing up the mistaken notion that American America was virgin land or wilderness inhabited by non-people called savages, wrote that European explorers and invaders discovered and inhabited land. Had it been pristine wilderness, then it would possibly be so still today. For neither the technology nor the social organization of Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries had the capacity to maintain of its own resources outpost colonies thousands of miles from home. Incapable of conquering true wilderness, he writes, the Europeans were highly competent in the skill of conquering other people and that is what they did they did not settle a virgin land they invaded and displaced a resident population Dunbar Ortiz and Helio Whitaker point out in an indigenous peoples history of the United States that North America in 1492 and certainly I might add, in 1620, was not a virgin wilderness but a network of indigenous nations. And these were civilizations based on advanced agriculture and featuring polities. And yet, we are not taught this as even a part of the history of our land. Our land? Whose land? Think of what that says about who we believe are the principal actors in the play of history. Think of what that means for what and who we value. Think of what that means for actually understanding the history of this country, what had happened, what has happened, and what is happening and why. The stories we tell ourselves matter. They shape opinions and take residence in our consciousness far below the level of even our own explicit awareness. Outside of even the content, there are choices made about where a story begins and where it ends. A mere 55 years after the events of what we call the Thanksgiving story, war broke out between the English and the Wampanoags. Called King Philip's War, it has come to be seen as the bloodiest, most violent conflict ever fought on American soil. Several hundred colonists dead and dozens of English settlements destroyed or heavily damaged. Thousands of Indians killed, wounded, or captured and sold into slavery or indentured servitude. And yet, it does not rise to the level of American history? Or does it not fit the picture of what we want American history to be? I feel it is important to offer this service not to ruin anyone's enjoyment of the Thanksgiving holiday, nor to curb anyone's gratitude, certainly, but to place each on a firmer ground than we are often offered in the wider culture. I feel it is important understanding that many of you probably know much of this information and that you have already disabused yourself, at least intellectually, of the mythology of the simplistic Thanksgiving story. I feel it is important, even so, because that story, that myth, hangs on as myths are meant to do, and its moral ramifications, or rather its immoral ramifications, must be faced. And where better to face them than in a place where we pledge to remind one another of our highest aspirations, and where we work to deepen connections by practicing justice, and where we rededicate ourselves to affirming the inherent worth and dignity of every person and the interdependent web of all existence. I feel it is especially important this year, the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims arriving in the Mayflower on these shores because there will be a battle of stories. And any attempt to dispute, correct and fill out the traditional story taken not from history but from sources like the Mayflower poem we heard and the sudden inspiration of New Englanders two hundred years after the fact who retrospectively named it the first Thanksgiving any attempt to correct the details of the story itself and to put it in context with the troubling history on either side right up to the present day will be labeled by some as a politically correct distortion of history to fit a particular agenda, which is ironic considering that one can certainly see an agenda in the traditional stories and history lessons which ignore, dismiss or minimize the intentional theft of native lands and natural resources by any means necessary. I feel it is important because as Unitarian Universalists, we trace our religious roots to those early settlers and to their notions of Christian exceptionalism and white supremacy and to a belief that they had been led by God to claim this promised land so that anything or anyone who stood in their way was by definition outside of the will of God. Ortiz and Whitaker write that when smallpox greatly reduced the population of the area the Plymouth colony would occupy, some say by nearly 90%, the harsh reality to which Squanto returned when smallpox swept through the Wampanoag Nation. King James attributed that epidemic to God's great goodness and bounty toward us. Puritan William Bradford wrote of a particularly brutal and relentless attack on the Pequots. Those that scaped the fire were slain with the sword, some hewed to pieces, other run th- others run through with their rapiers, so as they were quickly dispatched, and very few escaped. It was a fearful sight to see them thus frying in the fire. And the streams of blood quenching the same, and horrible was the stink and scent thereof. But the victory seemed a sweet sacrifice, and they gave the prayers thereof to God, who had wrought so wonderfully for them, thus to enclose their enemies in their hands and give them so speedy a victory over so proud and insulting an enemy." They gave the prayers thereof to God. They gave thanks for the deadly epidemic that swept through the Wampanoags. Think of that from our perspective in the midst of this pandemic. They gave thanks too for the terribly brutal massacre of the Pequots. Thanksgiving. giving. Why do we need, why do I need to tell this story, these stories, these terribly uncomfortable stories? Because this, this is from an organization known as the Plymouth Plantation, celebrating the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims arriving on these shores. Their website says, The Plymouth colonists, native peoples of the region, mariners and traders who met along New England's shores of change created a new society, sometimes in conflict, sometimes in collaboration. Now I know they are not trying to write a comprehensive history on their website, but this is precisely the way we are urged to lightly skip over the actual history of our country sometimes in collaboration sometimes in conflict does not quite cover it because this sense of entitlement still exists and it is still wrapped in religious justification and white supremacy and nationalist exceptionalism back in 2014 Fox news commentator at the time Bill O'Reilly echoed a widespread sentiment telling undocumented immigrant and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Jose Antonio Vargas in an interview that he didn't deserve to be here. Listening to Vargas explain how a proposed executive order at the time would allow him to visit his mother for the first time since he was 12 years old without fearing that he would never be allowed back into this country, O'Reilly said, It is a compassionate move, but it may not be a just move because you and the other people here illegally don't deserve to be here. Now I don't mean to oversimplify the real complexity of comprehensive and compassionate immigration reform but listen to that single word deserve I've heard people, good people, compassionate people say that very thing about undocumented immigrants they don't deserve to be here and what struck me was the underlying implication that they And I do deserve to be here. How did I come to deserve that, I wonder? Other than the accident of birth, how did Bill O'Reilly come to deserve that? How far do we wish to take this question of deserving, that self-satisfied conviction about what we deserve, has come wrapped in talk of God's will and promised lands and manifest destiny and we built this, even if we self-evidently did not build this, even if it was slave labor that built it, even if it was built on the bodies of indigenous people, that self-satisfied conviction. Are we who claim this as our home, are we so certain of what we deserve? This is my home, yes, but can I ignore the history of the land on which I stand when I make pronouncements about who does and doesn't belong? Can I afford to ignore that the campaign to wipe out native populations in this state of California was so systematically brutal and grimly successful that it is described by many scholars as genocide. When I confidently affirm what is just for others am I also asking for justice for myself, my community, my people? I have to listen. I must listen to other stories. I must hear the harm that was done and be willing to work toward healing. I'm not suggesting we live in ongoing self-recrimination that does nobody any good, but I am suggesting that remaining aware of our tentative claim on this land or any land should make us ever more grateful to call this home, ever more respectful of the indigenous peoples, and ever more compassionate to the stranger, the outsider, the excluded. This is my home, yes, the country where my heart is, but mine is not the only heart. It holds my story, but my story is not the only story. And the stories we tell ourselves matter. The stories we are humble enough to hear. The stories that tell truths from a perspective we have not considered. The stories that tell the truth and when I listen I begin to understand my place in the family of things I find a humility that allows gratitude rather than entitlement I worry less about what people deserve and think more about what people need and how we can thrive together I'm not here because I deserve to be And yet, here I am. Here you are. Here we are. What will we do with this holy, undeserved beauty? How will we respond to this unimaginable gift? What stories will we tell ourselves and one another about our history? What stories? will we tell about this time of struggle and change and possibility